you always do what is expected of you. The things expected by your family, friends and society. Or do you, on occasion, go against these set rules in order to do what you want to do? What could you achieve if you did? What goals could you set for yourself? What could become your norm? It's the life of a Wicklow woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In Greystones, Wicklow, in 1860, a child was born. Her name was Elizabeth Hawkins Whitshed. Elizabeth was born into a family in a corner of Ireland which was somewhat alien to the rest of the island. As she entered the world, she found her wrists were not bound by poverty. Her father was Captain Vincent Hawkins Whitshed, a wealthy man who had inherited lands through his role in the British Army. Not only was she connected to the British Army, but she was also a close cousin to the Irish nationalist Charles Stuart Parnell. She was also a relative of at least three European royal families. To say that she had a mixed view of the world through each of these influences is treating the situation lightly. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, her father was not a real presence in her life as she entered her teens. When she was just 11 years old, he passed away. His dying wish was to leave all his lands and property to Elizabeth. From the age of just 11, she was the owner of 2,000 acres of land in Wicklow, Dublin and Meath, as well as a great state house called Killen Carrick House. On the land were hundreds of Irish families. These were the serfs of the crown and the platform upon which wealth was grown. It was also a platform within which the roots of wealth did not grow. Her mother was named Anne, and she devoted all her time to ensuring her children had a more than comfortable life on the east coast of Ireland. Elizabeth had a very happy childhood as a result of her mother's care. She grew up under the watch of her mother and the governess the family had hired locally to be an additional parent to Elizabeth after her father's passing. She became great friends with this governess and from her she learned of the plight of the poor Irish. Anne ensured Elizabeth never wanted for anything and she was quite doted over. Should she imagine she had a headache, both her mother and the governess insisted she was to go outside, away from her books, to play in the fresh air. She would use this as a convenient excuse to not take her schooling too seriously and would often find a reason why it would be best for her to be outside. Growing up in Wicklow, the world outside her door had vast mountains, lakes and forests, which would rival any work of art created by man or nature. With the other children of the area, 
She would spend hours upon hours exploring Wicklow's landscapes and playing games in the valleys. When she turned 18, however, it was decided that her adventures were to come to an end and a marriage was arranged for her. She was sent to London, away from her friends. She was to marry a man called Captain Fred Burnaby. This was done through what was called the London Society, a group created to wed off the daughters of the wealthy to the sons of power in order to ensure that wealth and power remained at the top of the class system. Fred selected her due to her beauty. He never bothered to learn of her character or personal goals. He was a soldier, an adventurer, an author and had plans to enter politics. When they married, he was on his way to the top and had gained a sort of celebrity around his name. On their wedding day, the then Prince of Wales, the heir to the British throne, gifted them the entire contents of an upper-class smoking room for Fred to enjoy. The poor tenants on Elizabeth's land gathered together what they could under the watchful sword of Fred's soldiers and purchased a silver tea tray. This set an early tone of bitterness between the two after Elizabeth had learned of how the gift had been acquired from those whom she considered her friends. A year into their marriage, she gave birth to their son called Harry. From that point on, the two seldom spoke. Fred died five years after the birth of their son. They had lived separate lives from the point of Harry's birth to Fred's death. She had packed up everything she could fit into a suitcase and set off to Switzerland after Harry's birth. Having lived amongst the elite during her marriage, Elizabeth struggled with the idea that they should stamp on the lives of the poor Irish in order to purchase items such as smoking room attire. She chose Switzerland as her destination as she had heard of its beauty, similar to Wicklow and the vast valleys in which one can spend months exploring. She had been too embarrassed to return to Wicklow at the thought of the suffering that had been endured for the sake of her wedding gift. When she arrived in Switzerland, she was not disappointed by its beauty. She marvelled at its large peaks, icy mountain tops, and the spectacular villages built into the base of mountains. Before she had arrived in Switzerland, Elizabeth was having some issues with her lungs whilst living in London. She found breathing quite difficult. This nearly instantly stopped when she arrived at her new home due to the lack of pollution and fresh air aplenty. Within two weeks of settling into her new surroundings, Elizabeth was quickly reliving her youth and exploring the mountain ranges. She and a friend would take a jaunt on the trails under the mountains, discussing life, politics and past adventures. After some time walking under the mountains, a giddy curiosity overcame the two women and they found themselves attempting to scale one of the tallest peaks in their town. Normally, hikes and climbs were remarkable due to the will and strength of the individual attempting to summit a mountain. 
Their attempt was all the more remarkable as the two women were dressed in the clothes men at the time expected them to wear. They scaled the mountainside in high-heeled boots with button clasps, wide Victorian skirts, corsets gripping their waist and large, unpractical hats. Given the lack of preparation, on this occasion they failed to make it to the top of the mountain. They did, however, manage to climb to a ledge where they sat and looked back across the land. Wowed by what she was seeing and feeling personally liberated, Elizabeth decided now she was free from the expectations of women, she was going to do exactly what she wanted to do. Elizabeth later said of her time sitting on the ledge of that mountain, This was when, for the first time, I really saw those glacier-clad alpine ranges which were to mean so much to me for the rest of my life. She then spent the next few months preparing herself. She purchased the right equipment, trained at low-level mountains and worked on her strength. The following summer, she scaled Mont Blanc twice, becoming one of the first women in the world to do so. Given the pressures on women at the time to always be ladylike, and to prove women could do anything men could do but better, she managed this feat again in high-heeled boots with button clasps, a wide Victorian skirt, a corset gripping her waist, and a large, unpractical hat. Over the next winter and following summer, she made over 100 ascents up the tallest peaks. Her fame across the world began to grow as the climbing woman in heels. She became an icon for women across the world and even led the world's first women-only expedition. She then moved on to Norway and Lapland and over six summers in the region notched up a total of 33 climbs, 27 of them the first ascents. On most of the mountains she scaled, she became the first woman to reach their summit. She published a series of books with photos of her adventures and people were often amazed by her attire, especially in the photos where she stood next to men in proper winter and climbing gear. In 1896, Elizabeth was climbing Monte Disgrazia on the Italian-Swiss border with two male guides when they got caught in a ferocious storm. Suspecting that life could come to an end if they went any further, the two male guides began making their way back down through the mountain. Elizabeth shouted at them that they'd come too far and should keep going. The guides told her, if she goes up, death is certain. Elizabeth responded, the lady came to climb and climb she will do. Her guides followed. Remarkably, not only did she make it to the top of the mountain in the storm, but she also made it back to the bottom again. She did this dressed in high-heeled boots with button clasps, a wide Victorian skirt, a corset gripping her waist, and a large, unpractical hat. She said of the experience herself, 
We now paused a moment to pull ourselves together for the final struggle. Hats were tied down, goggles discarded, the rope somewhat shortened. And grasping our axes and taking a deep breath, we stepped around the corner and into the full force of the shrieking hurricane. The top was a right welcome sight, for it told us that we might now, with a clear conscience, go back down again. By the early 1900s, Elizabeth had more or less retired from climbing, but she remained one of the sport's best-known spokeswomen, and in 1907 she helped to establish and was elected the first president of the Ladies' Alpine Club, the first climbing association for women in the world. She also turned her hand to travel, writing and to family history, most notably a two-volume translation of the letters of her great-great-great-grandmother, Charlotte Sophie, Countess Bentinck, and travelled widely, both in Europe and beyond. When war broke out in 1914, she promptly enrolled for war work, at first as a nurse in a French Red Cross hospital, and from 1916 as director of the fundraising section of the British Ambulance Committee. A few months after the armistice, she set out to visit the French battlegrounds. She travelled through an area devastated by four years of war and was profoundly affected by what she saw. She devoted much of the 1920s to efforts to promote Anglo-French friendship. She continued to travel widely, published her memoirs and maintained her involvement in the affairs of the Ladies' Alpine Club, of which she was re-elected president in 1933. She remained very active almost to the end. She died on the 27th of July 1934 and was buried in Prompton Cemetery in London. Before she died, she had remarried twice, once to John Frederick Main, who died in America a few years after they met, and a second time to a man called Aubrey LeBlonde. Before she settled in America, she also sold the land and home she inherited from her father. Once she left Wicklow embarrassed, she never returned again. Elizabeth had been known to her climbing friends as Lizzie LeBlonde. She is recognised in history as an Irish pioneer in mountaineering. Having made films about her alpine activities, she was also amongst the world's very first female filmmakers. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you enjoy these stories and want to help to support the podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash We the Irish We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production Ryan is Anam Dunn Gurav Mahakud
You can't plan your day around accidents. That's why at your local Leia Health and Wellbeing Clinic in Cherrywood, we're open 10am to 10pm, 365 days a year. So anyone can get consultant-led care within an hour of arrival. For breaks, burns and sprains. It's the expert care you'd expect from Leia Healthcare for the minor injuries and illnesses you never expected. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Urgent care available to all aged 12 months and up. Wellbeing benefits available to Leia Healthcare members.